Well, all right, everybody. Hey, thank you for being here. We do want to jump right in tonight. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. I'm trying to get the uh, slideshow working. It's not seems to be going there yet, but we'll get that in time. But um, everybody, it's, I don't have it, Doug. So here we go. Let's try that. But anyway, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We do want to dive in. I am going to uh, be doing three chapters of, of the Bible today. We're going to be doing 9, 10, and 11. So we have a lot to get to, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time with a lengthy review about where we've been and what we've been talking about. I would suggest if you haven't um, seen it or if you missed a week and you haven't heard uh, the sermons, I suggest you just go to Calvary Chapel. Cheyenne.org, then you can hear the sermon at that time. And, uh, but we will review a little bit. Last week, well, actually, let's back up. We, we are reading the book of Genesis. Let's start there. We're reading the book of Genesis, which is, remember, really the story of us. Adam and Eve is the story of us. Cain and Abel is the story of us. Noah is the story of us. So it's just not some ancient stories that were written long ago and really unrelatable to who we are today because it is the story of us. So I want to ask you all, no matter if you're out in the, cafe, in the uh, coffee shop or in here or listening online, to open up your heart because that is so much the key. In the privacy of your own heart, open up your heart and let God speak to you tonight. Last week, uh, we focused on the flood that destroyed the earth because the hearts of men were evil, the Bible tells us. And that uh, right now we, we find that we ended with the water subsides and the ark has landed. And God tells Noah to bring out every living creature, the creeping things, the flying things, and let them uh, multiply abundantly throughout the entire world. And so Noah comes out with all the animals and with his family. And he, as soon as he gets out, he, uh, he builds an altar and he offers up burnt offerings of gratitude to God because he's so happy about what God has done in his life. And so, again, if you haven't, you know, heard all the other sermons, and this is your first week, it's going to seem like we're just diving right in. And actually, we are, but again, just go back and try to listen to them. Be opening your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. And they'll keep trying to work on why that's not working, but we'll, we'll get it. If not, it's fine. In Genesis 9 chapter 1, start the old timer. It says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Yeah, it, we, we read that. Those are the exact words that God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And right here we find just another confirming statement that with Noah's family, the world is going to be starting over. Almost as if the previous stuff had never happened. And right here we just see that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, but yet at the same time we are all now descendants of Noah. In verse 2, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they're given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be for food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now right here we read that God gives to mankind all of the plants, all of the animals, and all of the world 
to us for food. And uh, understand that the garden, the garden of Eden is no longer is no longer represented in the life that they now live. The garden is gone, and they were all vegetarians back then, and they didn't need to eat meat, and God provided for everybody's needs. And so the author's aim right here, as he, as he talks about this, is to teach us how to live in a post-Garden of Eden world. But why is God giving us meat to eat? It is a good question. Most people don't even think about it. It's just always the way it's been. Now, traditional explanation is that it was a concession for man's desire for meat. Now, if I had a slide of a, of a big barbecue, and I would just say, look at it. I mean, it looks amazing. And when you, know, when you think of a barbecue, the smells and the flavors, we're attracted to that. But maybe God allowed us to eat meat as another added form of population control. Because honestly, eating meat isn't really that good for you. Maybe we would live longer. Maybe we would be more healthy if we didn't eat meat. But I personally believe, now this isn't something that you may find in any commentary, but this is what I personally believe. I believe that God allowed it because as the people spread throughout the world, as God commanded to spread throughout the world, God knew there wouldn't always be climates that were going to be available for a plant-like only diet. And that we just simply wouldn't survive if it was only about eating plants. And so God allowed us to eat meat. Now, God knew there was going to be some big climactic changes coming up. And remember, we believe that during before the flood, there, it had never rained. And so there was this big cloud, this, this water cloud in the sky, which would have made the earth a lot warmer. And so maybe the entire earth was much like a garden. But God knew that eventually things were going to change as all the water came down for the flood, as it all fell out of the sky and the earth changed. God knew later on there was going to be ice ages. And then after that, the, or the, the polar ice caps would start to freeze. And as man was spread throughout the world later on, that we just wouldn't survive. So God does have a plan. And God does have some stipulations we see right here about meat. He allows us to eat meat but we're not allowed to eat meat with the blood in it. The Bible talks at different parts of the Bible about eating a strangled animal. You can't do that because the blood stays in the meat. You have to butcher the animal where the blood flows out. And I know that's really gross to talk about, but I think maybe it was more of a safety issue, a health issue. The people back then, they didn't know about microorganisms and bacterias and all the different diseases that can be associated with blood. And so God, as he protects his people, He's telling us some things about the spilling of blood, both for animal and for human. Let's look in verse 5. It says, Surely I will require your life blood for, from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever shed man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Right here we see that God outlaws murder with the threat of consequences for it. And up until this point, God relied on the human conscience to, to induce human beings into living righteously or doing the right thing. Well, how'd that work out? Not very well. 
And so God is talking about the sacredness of life right here, actually. And remember when God, I mean, when Cain killed his brother Abel. Remember what God did? God didn't condemn him. God, God didn't kill him, as this law is talking about. God allowed him to live. Yes, he was cursed. But God said, no other man can take this man's life. That wasn't the rule. That wasn't the law back then. But God now establishes a new law. And it says that if any person or animal takes a man's life, then that man or animal should pay with his own life. If a bear kills a man, you got to hunt the bear down. Take him out. He's to pay for it with his own life. God expects human beings to take a murderer's life. And that's hard to hear for many people. But the death penalty for murder is so important in the Bible that it is the only law that is repeated in all five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, I, have a, I had a slide that I was going to show you, all the places. I'll just read a few of them. You see this, this verse right here in chapter 9, verse 6, but in Exodus 21 and verse 12, it says this, He who fatally strikes a man shall be put to death. The context is murder. Well, how do we know that the law is only intended for murderers or premeditated murder, I should say? Well, because in Exodus 21 and verse 13, it says this, if he, the killer, did not do it by design, in other words, if it wasn't premeditated, I will assign to you a place to which he can flee. We talked about that um, in another chapter, the cities of of refuge where you could go and hide out until so a vigilante group wouldn't come and string you up. Maybe you killed someone by accident and you needed a fair trial. There was a place that you could go and hide out and be protected until you got a fair trial. Leviticus 24, 17 says, if anyone slays a human being, he shall be put to death. This is the beginning of human government and like it or not, Agree with it or not, wish those pages weren't in the Bible or not, God instituted capital punishment as a basis for human government, but also as the ultimate statement on the sanctity of life. And this is why many Christians believe in capital punishment. Let's look in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, e even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me 
and all flesh that is on the earth. Right here we find the beginning of God's covenant relationship with mankind. Six, six more times in just this little section, God mentions his covenant to Noah. And the, the, he says he's going to give him a sign, and he calls it a bow. We know it as a rainbow. A sign, a bow, that he will never again destroy ma mankind, at least not with the flood. And then in verse 15, we see this little phrase that can be kind of confusing sometimes. It says, I will remember, God says, I will remember my covenant. And th that phrase, that, that word remember is really an antonym for never forget. But, but the context implies to focus on. So God is saying, I will focus on my covenant, my promise with you, Noah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the God of the universe, he doesn't need to remember something as if he forgot something before because the creator of the universe knows all things and he doesn't forget anything. Scripture tells us in Psalm 147, it reminds us that God, it says, counts the number of the stars that he gives names to all of them. That God has named all the stars. If you imagine how many stars there are and each one has a specific name, trust me, God doesn't forget. This phrase assures us that God remembers his promises. Let's go ahead and read verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan, the three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Let's stop right there for a second and just think about that. The whole earth was populated. Isn't it amazing to think that every person in this room, every person out there, every person in this city, in this country, every person watching online, every person in the world was created and comes as a descendant of Noah all throughout the entire world. And every single person in one way or another is linked to either Ham or Shem or Japheth. Verse 20, Then Noah began farming and he planted a, a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now the Bible doesn't explicitly say what Ham did to his father. Nor do we know how Noah even learned of what happened. Did he ask his sons? Did they, as soon as he woke up, he, you know, he knew he went to sleep without a blanket and he woke up and he was covered with a blanket. But there are two likely possibilities of what really occurred. Number one is Ham did something far worse than just gaze at 
and maybe even mock his father because this term, this phrase, his father's nakedness and other parts of the scripture indicates sexual content along with it. So maybe we don't know he did something more than just mock his father. Number two, maybe Ham did nothing more than just look at his naked father and then he told his brothers about it in some mocking or sinful way. But when Noah woke to find himself covered, he questioned the other two sons. And Ham, or whatever it was that happened, we know the other two boys told him what Ham had told them. And they said, we didn't look at you, Father. We covered you. So this is the closest to the literal reading of the story, what I just said there. But whatever happened, we know sin was involved. That's the point of this story. Although God destroyed the world with the flood, sin was not destroyed. The sinful nature of man lives. Sin remains as part of man's nature, and it's always shocking, church, anybody who's listening. It's shocking and disappointing to see the nature of sin in our children, isn't it? It's hard. We try to raise them the right way, and then sometimes they just go their own way. But it happens because we all have a sinful nature. An example, did, did, you, have to, did you have to teach your children how to lie? <laughs> no. You had to teach them how to tell the truth because we all have a sinful nature and the sinful nature survived the flood. But in verse 25, it reads like Noah curses the son of Ham, Canaan. That's what it reads like. But I want you to understand, Noah is not punishing Ham's son for something that Ham did. Instead, Noah was referring to the nation of the Canaanites that would come from Ham through Canaan. And what I want us all to understand is that our sins have consequences on our families. And it can be many things. Noah's this great hero of the faith, but he got drunk. And horrible example to the, of a godly man doing a sinful thing. Horrible example of godliness to his sons. But maybe that story is included to show us that even godly people can sin. We know that's true. Maybe it's to remind us that bad examples and sin affects our families. Now, we aren't punished for our father's sins. Let's be clear. But the consequences of sin can be with us for many, many years. The consequences of their sin, sometimes for generations. You see it with alcoholism. If you have alcoholism in a family generation after generation, maybe you're more prone to the alcoholic gene if there is one, or more prone, because you've watched it, you've, you've been accustomed to it, you've seen it, you've gotten used to it, you're acclimated to, to all the things that go along with it. Pride, it's another thing that can be generational. Your kids see you and how you're always right, you always need to be right. You want to get noticed and you want to be the smartest and you're striving for this and you're striving for that and they turn out more prideful than you. It can just be passed down, but we know Ham's mocking attitude here revealed a severe lack of respect for his father and a lack of respect for God himself. Verse 27 says, 
May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. That just simply means that the, the Jasevite or Japhethites, I guess you would call them, would live with the Shemites on friendly terms. That's all that's really talking about. So verses 24 through 29, that little section that we just read, it actually sets the foundation for Israel's foreign policy throughout the promised land. We see, we read of it in Deuteronomy 20. You can just reference this, 16 through 18. Again, I had a slide for it, but let's check and see if we got it back yet. It's there? Oh, I love you guys. They're great. They're just following along. I didn't know it was up. So you see the, the passage there. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord our God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivitite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. In contrast to Ham, Shem and Japheth showed respect for their father. Now chapter 10, as you can get ready to turn there, this chapter is known as the Table of Nations. And, and this is unique in the annals of ancient history. And the purpose of this chapter is in verse 1 and verse 32, the end of verse 32. I'll let you just read that. But let me just tell you, the purpose is to explain how the earth gets repopulated after the flood by the descendants of Noah, by the three sons and their descendants. And we're only going to be talking about a couple things that stand out, but I'm telling you, this is a fascinating chapter. I went into this study thinking, oh my gosh, a whole chapter of genealogies, that's going to be boring. But the more I studied, the more I understood the anthropology that goes on in, this, in these genealogies, the more fascinated I became. It may be my most favorite chapter that I've studied so far. Got to take a drink of water for this. There's some hard names here. Verse 1, chapter 10. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshish and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togermah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now, there's a slide I hope they put up. It it's shows Noah's family. And I want you to understand this about this table of nations. It's a horizontal genealogy rather than a vertical one. We see a vertical genealogy in chapter 5 and later on in chapter 11. But right here we see a horizontal genealogy genealogy and it's not designed to trace ancestry instead it's more about political and geographical and about ethnic affiliations than it draws attention to the tribes that were in and around the promised land that land promised to israel so it shows which peoples as well in the ancient world that shared in the blessing and those who shared in the curse Chapter 10 is an absolutely fascinating chapter. And we get this great study of the anthropology of the cultures and the races of nations and all these ancient peoples and, 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 and if you will, how they homesteaded. We understand homesteading here in Wyoming. How they 
picked out their land. And it's very fascinating to really get into it, but we don't have the time for it, but I would encourage you to study it on your own. God is the God of all nations. God is the God interested in all nations, and God is the God who has broad concern for all peoples of the world. Now, verse 6, let's read that. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabtha and Ramah and Septeca, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth to Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehobothar and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrazim and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. Now, so here we find the descendants of Ham. Four sons here are listed. But the author is mainly focusing on this man named Cush because it is through Cush that we get this other famous man that they talk about here named Nimrod. Now, why is Nimrod so important? Why all of a sudden, listing these genealogies, they just do this like a parenthesis and they throw Nimrod in there? Well, it's because, as it says, that Nimrod becomes the founder of a great empire which directly affects the nation of Israel. Now, before I talk about Nimrod, we need to review a little bit. I'll come back to Nimrod. Let me remind you of a couple things. Remember that we are reading, well, everything we are reading is leading up to the snake crusher. We read about the snake crusher in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve sinned. She was led astray by the serpent, and so God curses the serpent. He curses Satan. He curses the ground. But he says, through your seed, tells the woman, through your seed, there's going to be a, someone who crushes the head of the snake. That's why I call him snake crusher. And we know that person will directly be Jesus Christ through the line of Shem. That's how we get Jesus. It goes Seth and Noah and Shem and Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus. And the name Noah means rest. And so the people at that time are thinking, is Noah going to be the snake crusher? Is it going to be Noah that we're going to find rest? Will Noah be the one we find rest in? No. We know that through Noah, we will find the one that we rest in. There's a slide. I hope they show it. It's Matthew 11, verse 28. This is what Jesus said. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's beautiful. Jesus, the one to come, the ray of hope that we've been waiting for. Now, the name Shem, really interesting, means glory. And the name Shem speaks to the glory of God. That God's glory would be revealed through Shem as the person of Jesus Christ, the one true God, the snake crusher. Now, Shem's family, they're known as the Semites. Does that word set, ring a bell? Like, have you heard the phrase anti-Semitic? 
it's a prejudice against the line of Shem, who was the grandfather of a man named Abraham, who happens to be the patriarch of the nation of the Jews, of Israel. And so we see this still going on today, this prejudice toward the line of Shem. Now the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham and Canaan were cursed, as we, we just read, because of their disrespect of God, because of their rebellious and sinful nature. And therefore, there was always going to be this constant persecution quest, this anti-Semitic path toward the Jews. And like I said, it's still happening today. Now, back to Nimrod for a second, now that you have that review. He is mentioned because it says that the nations he founded play a very important part in the history of Israel. It says he built both Nineveh and Babylon. Now, where have we heard the name Nineveh before? What story? Jonah, right? Jonah, the whale. Nineveh was in Assyria. And if you remember your history of the, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, it was divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. But the nation of Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom. Nimrod founded that nation. And Babylon, another city he founded, came and conquered and destroyed the southern kingdom. They destroyed Jerusalem. They burnt down the temple. And so Nimrod plays a very important part, and the author wants to bring this out. thing is, God knew all this was going to happen from the beginning. And so he allowed all these nations to form and to exist for a larger purpose of good. Do you think they understood it at the time? Absolutely not. But it's fascinating to know what we know now. In verse 15, it says, Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn. And Heth and the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hebatite and the Archite and the Sinite and the Arvadite and the Semarite and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go, go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Also to Shem, the father of all children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpashad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arpashad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber, Two sons were born to Eber. The name of one is Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Sheleth, Sheleth, and Hazarmaveth, and Jared, and Hadoram, and Uzil, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimiel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go toward Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on earth 
after the flood. Now, listen, there is a huge significance to all these names, and I'll just tell you in a nutshell. First, there are important theological truths in these lists of names and places. Number one is that Jehovah God is the Lord of all the nations. Can you hit the next slide? There we go. Now, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 tells us, as you see on your screen, tells us that God gave all the nations their inheritance. That's the Old Testament. What The New Testament, though, applies so much to us. Paul said in Acts 17, verse 26, as he recounts these, these genealogies, as he remembers the story that's been passed down generation after generation, he says, from one man, he made, speaking of God, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps, it's still free will. You don't have to seek him, but perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. Why am I here in Cheyenne? Because God has chosen the exact time and place that I would live. And for those people who I've come in contact with since I've been here since 1999, those who I've helped see the Lord and know the Lord and become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it wasn't a coincidence. God determined the exact time and the exact place where you would live and I would live. And we would cross paths so that perhaps, perhaps you would seek Him and find Him though he's never been far from any of you. Jehovah, our God, is the God of geography and the God of history. He's in control what God promises he performs, and Noah's prophecy about his sons came true. Next slide. Second, we all have external differences, right? But all nations belong to the same human family. Look, we're all different. I have a different skin color and hair and weight. I speak differently and I'm just different. You're different from me. But God made us all of one blood, the Bible says, and no race or people can claim that to be superior to any other race or any other people. And yes, it's true that God has permitted some nations to make greater progress economically and politically than other nations. It's absolutely true. We can't deny that. But their achievements that they've made, these great things that they've done, don't prove that they're better than any other people's. Proverbs 22, verse 2 reminds us, God says, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Number three, God has a purpose for all nations to fulfill. By the time we're done with chapter 11, you'll see these three verses, 9 through 11, they make it clear that God has chosen the nation of Israel. He chose them. And from chapter 12 on, the focus, the narrative changes. It's all about Israel, as seems to be the rest of the Bible. But God also used Egypt. God also used Babylon and Assyria and Media Persia. And God also used, in case you don't know those names, you know, Rome. God used Rome to accomplish his purposes with reference to the Jewish nation. God even used pagan rulers like 
Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Darius and even Augustus Caesar. And I know some of you want me to say it. God even uses Donald Trump. God used Barack Obama for his purpose. We don't know what that is. But we don't have to be pulling our hair out, watching the news, getting freaked out and angry because God is in control. God has a plan. Number four, God is concerned for all nations, church. This, look, as a church, we are commissioned to go out to the world. It's called the Great Commission. And we're to go out into all the world. And that isn't just some New Testament afterthought. That is literally woven into the fabric of the Old Testament. That's what we're reading about now. And finally, Noah's three sons, they left a mixed legacy on the world, didn't they? Some of it good, but maybe most of it bad. But the Lord of the nations is still in charge, and history is still His history. We move on to chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Now wait, what? The whole earth used the same language and the same words. It seems to indicate that all languages trace back to one common tongue or one common language. We don't know, but given that the Bible traces all human beings to one man, one couple, it would make sense then that we all at one point shared one language. Verse 2, it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the Son of Men built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there confuse their, and, con, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building this city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Next slide. The key statement in this section is verse 4. We see four things. First, they aim to build a city. Second, they aim to build a tower in the city that reached the heavens. Third, they aim to make a name for themselves. And fourth, they aim not to be dispersed over the whole earth. Now, there's a relationship here between the first two and the second two. Building a city corresponds to not wanting to be dispersed over the whole earth as God commanded. To disobey God. Number two, the tower relates to the making a name for us. It's called pride. Everyone's going to know about us. We're going to build this tower. We'll be the center for all the world to see. 
everyone will know about how great we are and what we have done when they see our tower. And so we find application here because these are the sins of all of us. These are the sins of me and these are the sins of you. The praise of man, we love it. And there is not a person here and there is not a person in the world that isn't affected by this our struggles with it. And listen, it comes in different forms. That's true. None of us wants to be disapproved of or shunned or set aside or not listened to or never noticed. We want to make a name for ourselves. Number two, the sin of all of us is the love of security. They built a city, and they put a wall around the city. And we all struggle with making our lives secure. All of us making more money, working harder, spending less time with family, spending less time with each other, spending less time with God. Making more stuff, bigger house, bigger plot. Both parents working, I just go... When does it stop? So again, we find the continuous sin of man. Even after the flood, even after the warnings, the clouds get dark, the clouds come, the skies get dark, the clouds come out, lightning, thunder. Adam and Eve, don't do this. Cain and Abel. And yet, after all that, don't be like the people of old. Here we go again. And now we're even more worse off than we were before. It just repeats over and over, but God always gives us a ray of hope. Did you realize that that really is the whole point of the Old Testament? Judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. Groundhog Day. Repeat. Do it all over again, and we never get it right. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that, because it's all leading up to the fact that all of us are sinners. That all of us, we can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough or pray enough or pay enough or can't be morally good enough. We can't save ourselves. Without Jesus, we're just doomed. That's the facts. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. The very one that the world rejects. I just, maybe you're hearing this now, you, or you're going to hear it. Maybe you're going to get the CD and you don't even know this is going on and one day you hear this and you'll hear me talking to you and I'm just like, why don't you listen? Why don't you see it, that he, he loves you and that he sacrificed his only son to die in your place? We deserve the judgment, but he went before us. He wants you in his arms. I have a picture. I think it might be up, but there he is. This is what I see. This is why I believe pride is the most talked about sin in all the Bible. Pride separates us from God. And why the Bible says pride is an abomination to God. Intellectual pride, physical pride, Theological pride, socioeconomic pride is 
The absence of humility is killing us. It's killing our world. And it's on all sides. Only Jesus, who is God, who came into the world to die for us, to crush the head of the serpent, Satan, Jesus is our only hope. And God's been showing us this over and over and over. It's been God's plan since the beginning. Let's conclude here with verse 10. <laughs> Forgive me. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpashad. And he had other sons and daughters. Arpashad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpashad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah. And he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber. And he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sergu. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sureg. Excuse me. And he had other sons and daughters. Surig lived 30 years and became the father of Naor. And Surig lived 200 years after he became the father of Naor. And he had other sons and daughters. Naor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Naor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah. And he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Nahor and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth of Ur in the Chal of the Chaldeans. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son, and the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Here is just a retelling of the same genealogy that we found in chapter 10, but there's few added details. This is a vertical genealogy. And the purpose was to move the story forward to get us to Abram, who later on becomes the man we know as Abraham. And this is the account of Peleg. This is an, an additional account of Peleg, who has a son named Ru, and it is through Ru that Abram is born. Now, there are ten generations from Adam to Noah, and there are ten generations from Noah to Abram, who is Abraham. 
Abraham, we're going to be studying next, chapter 12, the patriarch of the Jewish people. His original name was Abram. But this is the last thing I want to say. The Bible has now moved from a universal story to the history of one specific people, the chosen people, the nation of Israel. And that's where we're going to begin next week. Pastor Aaron's going to begin that section, then Sean will come in and do the next. I'll come back and do the next, and we'll be rotating in that way.